Hey everyone, sometimes when we're talking, not all the time, but a few times throughout the episode, the audio gets a little weird. Hopefully this won't impact future episodes. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Religiously Literate. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jay. Join us as we explore the diversity of religious belief around the world. Is the highest concentration of Muslims in the Middle East? Do Muslims believe in Jesus? Stay tuned as we answer these questions and learn a little bit along the way. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are having some new, I don't know, what do you call it? Like new moments here. I'm still in Nashville, so nothing new about that. But Ryan, you are recording from your new home studio in Columbus, home Ohio. Home studio, you're hilarious. Well, what do, you, what do you want me to call it? Room? Right <laughs> now it's a third bedroom full of cardboard boxes and a desk. But yeah, we'll call it my home studio. Yeah, so how does it feel, you know, settling in? You've been there for about a week? Just about two weeks. Oh, well, um, sorry. It's cr- <laughs> you're fine, you're fine. Um, it's cool. I'm excited. I like Columbus much more than I like Kansas City. Um, but we'll see if I still like it after I started my program. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, true. And maybe after your first winter. Yeah. Well, I mean, I used to live in Northeast Ohio, so it's not, it won't be as bad here as it is up there. Okay. Um, yeah, but um, I'm excited. It's exciting. Um, it's so much more diverse here in Columbus. Um, I um, think well, I've... okay. Well, okay. For people who've never been to Kansas City, oh, yeah. the caveat is that Ryan lived on the Kansas side yes. in a county called Johnson County, this which everyone in Kansas hates. Like, mm-hmm. this is just most people on the, like, right outside of Kansas City on the Missouri side also hate Johnson County. It's probably yep. the one thing that Kansans and Missouri people can unite on. So yes. that's the first part. And Johnson County is notoriously white. So it's also one of, like the wealthiest counties in the country, too. not even in just the state. the state. Yeah. But in the country. So I don't want people to think that Kansas City is not diverse because Truth. Kansas City, Kansas yes. and Kansas City, Missouri are quite diverse. Yes. But Johnson is County is not. Yes. So just let that be known. But yes. um, before we get to our info about the the pod, the episode today, I wanted to. So we got some questions, and by we got some questions, I mean a couple of my friends are lazy, and so instead of listening to the things that we say and emailing <laughs> us or writing, contacting us somehow, they just decided to um, text me. Um, so the first question comes from Rachel. Shout out to a listener in LA, and her question. I don't remember it like word for word, but basically she was asking, she was really interested in like the History Channel has this series on um, aliens and how they've impacted religion, I guess. And so her question was- like, Are we talking about ancient aliens? Yes. Like George Giorgio Sukalos ancient aliens? I'm sure. I haven't watched this. So, uh, and so she wanted to know if we would do that, you know, do an episode on that. I want to talk to you about it. My gut reaction is No. Oh, I'm so there for that. Of course you are. (laughs) (laughs) So we can like debate this. Why don't you know for saying no is because the purpose of this podcast, while to entertain, is also to promote religious literacy. Okay, that's true. And ancient aliens, whether or not they exist, we will not debate. But religious practices, like 
we can't talk about that. And we, you can argue if they've influenced religion or not. But where, like, aside from going and watching this TV show, where are we going to find information about that? That's like scholarly. Uh, okay, yeah, you hit you. You stopped me with the scholarly. I had answers. So, I just said it was. It has to be scholarly. So that's so. It's not that I'm like against it because of the content. I just like fair enough. I I personally don't think it fully aligns with the mission of the podcast. And then aside from that, it is how can we? Because most of the work that we're doing, to some degree, has some scholarly background. Like this is true. I read scholarly books every week or every other week for the podcast. You do research as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do a lot of YouTubing, but you watch documentaries. Yeah, and so yeah. there's like some fact checking. I read some books. I start with some books too. So, um, And so it's just like, I don't know how we could do that on this topic. But I am like, up to the I'm, challenge. I'm going to try and find a way to make this work. Okay. I was like, feel free to prove yes, me wrong. I am, I'm going to try. So, so I guess the answer to that question is maybe, maybe <laughs> pending if we can find like quality information. If not, then we won't do it. Not that I'm we don't. It. We're not open to it. It's just, you know, Ryan was really into it. So he'll probably find a way to make it happen. The second question is from my friend Jenny. Shout out to our only listener in Michigan. And so basically she was asking if I would, if we would do an episode on Muay Thai, which I know oh, that you're really yes. interested in. Uh, this, the rationale for this is because in graduate school, I spent my entire time fighting for the ability to write a paper on Muay Thai as religious practice. And it took the whole program. I wrote this paper, whatever. Um, so my initial reaction to this was also no. What? Uh, no, okay. No as in not an episode specifically on Muay Thai. Okay. And the reason for that is there is only one academic paper of that caused Muay Thai religious practice. You and that's wrote paper one. I wrote. There's, oh. And I just I feel like- I thought there was like, another one. I thought there was other stuff. No, no, there's no paper that calls the activity of Muay Thai religious practice. Okay. Okay. Now, what is in scholarship, and there's no dispute about this, is that elements of Muay Thai take on, like there are religious practices and rituals that are involved in it. So people argue that it has religious parts, but no one argues that the whole is religious. That's what I argue. So I say that we would not do a full episode on Muay Thai itself. I just don't think that we would be good academics in that sense. That's fair. But what we can do is talk about religious practice in general in Thailand, because a lot of these rituals are connected to just religious practice in general. It's called Buddhism. I put an asterisk behind that because I think that after talking about Buddhism in general and like Buddhism and practice in Thailand mean two different things well we, like we also have a we have an episode in the queue for religion and sports yeah so, so i mean, I mean it could so it could fall into there it could, it could fall into there um but i just think that probably like just talking about religious practice in thailand might be a better fit for that or so it could be a, it could be a part of an episode i don't think in, in itself could be a full yeah, episode is yeah. basically what i'm saying so uh, we'll talk about Muay Thai at some point. We're still figuring that out, obviously, as we're having this conversation. Um, but it just won't be a episode in and of itself. And those are the questions. Nice. So should we talk about the topic at hand today? I guess so. All right. So today we're going to talk about Islam, which is the second largest religion in the world, something that we figured out a few episodes ago. <laughs> <laughs> you learned it with us. <laughs> Yes. Um, So there are 1.6 billion Muslims worldwide. And Ryan, please tell us the one country with the largest number of Muslims. 
It's not anywhere that you're thinking right now. It's actually Indonesia. Um, that's exactly what I was thinking, but maybe for other people. That's well, yeah, I, I wasn't talking thinking. to you. I didn't say it's not what Jay's thinking right now. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> but it's that's true. There is a large perception yes. that um, the Arab world has the most Muslims, yes. which I'm going on a limb here, but I think that the largest number of Muslims actually reside, like not in terms of one single country, but like in a region, are in um, South Asia. Yeah. So they're not even Arab at all. But plot twist. Yeah. Plot twist. So, yeah. So we're going to be talking about Islam, which is very exciting. Maybe at some point I'll talk about how I almost converted to Islam or not, if that fits in. (laughs) Spoiler alert or teaser, I guess. Uh, But yeah. So Islam, which is a monotheistic religion that started in Arabia. Before we get too deep into it, I want to, I feel like I do this every episode. I like explain okay. why Ryan wanted to talk about this. Oh, sure. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> um, which I, when I listen back to the episodes, I'm like, you're ridiculous. No one cares why you want to do the episode, but fine, whatever. Here we are. Okay. One thing that I think is really important to remember for those of our listeners that are less informed about Islam at this point in the podcast. Hopefully by the time you get to the outro and you listen to our email so that you can email your questions to us, um, you'll know a couple things. Um, It's one of the most, I think, one of the most misunderstood religions in the world. Um, Mm, I would make a caveat of one of the most misunderstood in America. Okay, yeah, 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 in the West, in the West. Um, And so I think it's important to talk about, particularly in the current political climate um, with Muslim bans and, you know, blaming everything on terrorists um, and then not calling actual terrorists terrorists because they're white. Yes. But, you know, that's a whole nother political discussion for a whole nother day. Um, but, yeah, so I think that in, you know, in the United States, it's a really misunderstood religion. And, and living in a post 9-11 world, I think there's a lot of not to say that there wasn't a lot of Islamophobia before 9-11 because there certainly was. Um, but living in a post 9-11 world and being having been old enough when 9-11 happened to remember, you know, how the dialogue surrounding Islam starkly changed with 9-11. You know, I think that when I, when I think about Islam, that's what I'm always thinking. Like when I'm teaching it in a class or when I'm, you know, talking to students about Islam, that's like the one thing I'm trying to drill home is like, you know, you don't have to, like, there's so much misinformation about Islam, Mm. you know, and like, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but you know, the whole line about death to the infidels and how that's like so vastly overblown and like one single line out of an entire holy text, you know, we'll, we'll get to that later, but like, yeah, yeah, it's just misunderstood. And I think people should really take a second and take a step back and, you know, really do what we're trying to do with this podcast and like give it its due diligence. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Islam because people are like, we don't care. What Ryan we don't has care to what say. Ryan has to say. True that. Um, so the key figure in Islam is Muhammad. And I think it's important to call him the key figure and not the founder mm-hmm. because Muslims believe that Muhammad didn't found Islam. Islam had already existed. It was the religion of the people called the Jews is religion of the people called the Christians. They had just corrupted it. And so he received a message to kind of get rid of that corruption, but he didn't found Islam. 
Islam had been around since the beginning. Anyway, so he was born around 570 in Mecca. He was of the Quraysh tribe. And at this time in Mecca, which is uh, currently the capital of Saudi Arabia, but at this time, Saudi Arabia didn't exist. So it was the Arabian Peninsula, I guess we'll call it, uh, which it, it still is. So the Arabian Peninsula, there was a lot going on in terms of like tribes are really important uh, vendettas. So if you like cross someone, their people were coming after you. And his tribe, the Quraysh, were incredibly strong, well-respected, and they were mainly known for protecting the city of Mecca. And at this time, as is today, actually, Mecca was a really important place, but it was where all of the different tribes would come and perform their religious rites. So various pilgrimage that would happen, people would come, The what is now known as the Kaaba was there during that time, and a bunch of different uh, statues and figures. I don't want to say idols because I think that has a lot of negative connotations and can come across as judgmental. So I don't want to say idols, but like figures and statues were there and they were in charge of protecting the city. And oftentimes when those pilgrimage would happen, uh, there was a time of ceasefire. So no vendettas would happen, no violence. And if it did occur, they were responsible for kind of taking care of that. So it was a very powerful, important tribe. He is born into this tribe. He's a Karash. Um, and then at the age of seven or six, sorry, his he's orphaned. Uh, I think his mother died in childbirth and then his father died when he was six. So he ends up being raised by his grandfather. And his grandfather, you know, teaches him, raises him all these things. It is believed that he was illiterate. We don't know, but that's kind of what we've been told is that he was illiterate. So he began working for this woman named Khadijah. She was a widower and she had a trade company or trade organization, I guess. I don't know if company is the right way of saying it, but she was a trader and she ran and she had uh, people who worked under her. And she was so impressed with his work that she he kind of like rose in the ranks under her and became her like first in command. And then eventually, because she's so impressed with him, she goes on to marry him. It's believed that, this is kind of jumping ahead, but it's believed that he married at least nine other women throughout his lifetime, but the entire time that he was married to Khadijah and she was alive, he was faithful. Uh, they had seven children, three of which died in infancy. infancy. So Muhammad and Khadijah have this wonderful marriage, this great business, they're successful, important people in the community, but Muhammad... Around age 40, is it feels like there's, I don't know if there's something, there's something more, but he really gets into meditation. And so he starts going off to a cave to kind of contemplate on a regular basis. And it's in his 40th year of life, during one of these contemplations in the cave, where the angel Gabriel um, visits him and tells him, recite. And this is noted as the first time that he receives a revelation and this is kind of the beginning of the Quran and um, the movement that would be called Islam. Of course, the religion itself had already existed, but as we know it today, this is kind of the new shaping of it. So he immediately, he is terrified uh, of this experience, but is moved by it. So he immediately goes home, tells his wife, on the spot, Khadijah believes him, and so does his cousin Ali. And so they are kind of the first quote-unquote And one thing converts. before you go on, and, um, 
this yeah. the angel Gabriel is the same angel that appeared to Mary um, to tell her that she was pregnant with Jesus oh, because he's yes. the messenger of God. So we're talking about the same angel here. Um, and his, just to like a yeah. brief aside, his, um, his reaction to the angel is very much in line or his reaction to Gabriel is very much in line with like uh, Christian and Jewish accounts of reactions to angels. Um, so there's like, there's, there's a, there's a scholar who talks about like the supernatural realm or the ideas of the supernatural in the Middle East at the time. And it's all like all wrapped up in these cultural things. It's pretty interesting. Well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so he goes back and they accept his message. And then from then on, it kind of becomes his, his mission to point people back to Islam, the true path. And it, it quickly actually starts spreading among the community. It's I, I, like the message starts spread, spreading in terms of people actually adopting it. They're kind of slow. And a lot of this is happening in Mecca, right? Yes, all this is happening in Mecca. And and things are going well. Like, you know, other people in the community are like, I don't really know what this dude's talking about, but we'll respect his beliefs. He's a part of, he's part of our tribe, his family, whatever. All is good and fine until he denounces the idols in Mecca or the the figures and statues. Then that's when things go downhill for him. So he then that tension starts to rise and threats on Muhammad's life start to happen. But his grandfather was very well respected in the community. So he's able to kind of protect Muhammad. And this is going well. But only for Muhammad. His followers don't have the same level of protection. So actually, as the initial kind of assassination attempts or at least talks about it are happening, Muhammad feels for his followers who aren't protected under his grandfather. And so he sent some of them to Ethiopia. Really? And there they were protected by a Christian king. Yeah. At least that's what the scholar of the book that I, I read. Not know that. Yeah, I learned some things reading this book. So Technically, Ethiopia is where it's at. I know Ethiopia has everything. Uh, so technically, the first Muslims, people who identify themselves as Muslims, outside of Arabia were in Ethiopia. So yeah, so they get sent and they are protected by a Christian king. The it's funny because in the book that I was reading, it says that the Karash were not happy with this, and so they wanted this Christian king to extradite them back, but he wouldn't. Dang. No extradition order. Yes. None. So he just protected them. <laughs> um, and so thing, so those people are protected. Muhammad is still spreading his message. He's getting followers. Tensions are rising, but things get really bad when his uncle dies or when Abu Talib dies. Suddenly, which I guess was his uncle, not his grandfather. So things are bad, but they get even worse because this same year, his beloved wife, Khadijah, dies. And now he's really screwed. But luckily for him, a group of Jews from uh, Yathrib, which is later named Medina, they invite him and his followers to come stay with him. And so this is the year 622 CE. And he and his followers move to Medina. This is, it's, it's roughly about 12 people who come with him. This is considered the beginning of his mission. And the this group of what are now called Muslims make their migration, which is known as the Hijra, to Medina. And this becomes the beginning of the Muslim calendar. 
a lot of things happen in terms of now I'm really like condensing the history. <laughs> like there's there's a, quite a bit that one can talk about what what happened here. But the condensed version is there are a lot of battles between Muhammad, his followers, and the Quraysh, and then there are even some disputes with the Jews that he is have he had taken refuge with. So prior to and in the beginning of Islam. When the Muslims prayed, they prayed towards Jerusalem. This is called the Qibla. It basically means the direction of prayer. Due to some disputes that they had with the Jews, Muhammad changed the direction of the Qibla towards Mecca. And this happens while they are uh, in, in Medina. Things are going well, you know, whatever. But it it's important to them to perform their pilgrimage to Mecca. So six years after leaving uh, Mecca to go to Muhammad or Medina. Muhammad and his followers try to go back to Mecca to perform their their pilgrimage, and they're stopped. A truce is declared, and they are permitted to come the next year. So they go back and they prepare for their pilgrimage that will happen in the following year. Well, it seems to be that in six twenty eight, for some reason, the truce breaks down, and. During this time, for the next two years, Muhammad builds up military strength. So in January of 630, he returns to Mecca and basically takes it over. Part of the reason why he's successful is because this is total surprise to the Meccans. Their leader, Abu Sufyan, actually ends up getting captured by the Muslims, and he submits to Islam. So that also probably didn't help their case either. Once he's inside the city, he goes to he circles the Kaaba, and then he destroys all of the figures that are in within the Kaaba, and rededicates it. Uh, takes the sacred stone that um, Abraham, mm-hmm. I believe, touched, sets that in and recreates it. Now this is a sacred place for Muslims. So everything else still a place for for pilgrimage as it had been before. But in order to be here, you have to be a Muslim. Um. In the same year, this is a really successful year for him. He goes on to conquer pretty much every other Arab tribe. And with he gives them kind of four months to decide. Either you can convert or, quote unquote, you will be killed with impunity. Which I took to mean that you can convert and we will protect you or don't convert. And whatever happens mm-hmm. to you is not my fault. Um, and then in 632, he dies in Medina. And that is the life of Muhammad in the beginnings of what we today call Islam. Again, very condensed version, but, you know, mm-hmm. we're not here to tell you everything. And that's what I have on Muhammad and the beginnings of Islam. Do you have anything to add? Um, I was just going to go on to what happened in the immediate aftermath. of his Oh, death. yeah, please do. So after Muhammad dies, all of the Muslims are like, okay, who do we follow? You know, who's going to be the leader of our new reformed religion. And essentially what happens is two sort of camps form. And so on the one side, you have Shia. And then on the other side, you have Sunni Muslims. And the Shia Muslims are the group of people who favored a hereditary succession. So they wanted Muhammad's son-in-law... Ali to succeed Muhammad. And the Sunni Islams 
or the Sunni Islams, the Sunni Muslims, <laughs> Lord, <laughs> Sunni Muslims favored the selection of a successor by consensus among the Muslim community. So essentially a very democratic process of sorts um, for the time. And those two um, types of Islam still exist today. Um, you probably heard about Sunni and Shiite Muslims all throughout the coverage of the war in Iraq and not so much in Afghanistan, but more in the Iraq war. Um, and so Shiite Muslims mostly reside in Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, and India. Um, Sunni Islam, Sunni Muslims, Lord, Sunni Islams. What the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Mostly reside and I'm tired people. I've been unpacking for two weeks. (laughs) <laughs> mostly reside in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Indonesia, and then some African countries. Um, and so those two groups, we're, I'm, we're not going to really cover the intricate details of the differences because there are differences between the two um, that are worth talking about in this episode. Um, what we plan to do in the future is either have an episode where we just talk about one of them or both of them together and kind of contrast them and compare. Um, but basically what you need to know is the way that they split was based on who was going to take over after Muhammad died. So that's kind of the, uh, the two groups themselves. All right. Um, do you want to talk about some beliefs, some basic beliefs, and then talk about maybe practices and stuff? Yeah. Well, first, I want to talk about the Quran. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the holy book um, and the most sacred text in Islam. So during Muhammad's life, he received many revelations. And these go on to be the actual verses of the Quran. And during his lifetime... You know, these things would happen. He would share the revelation. I mean, he would recite them. Uh, but if he was by himself, he would share the revelation with the community and people memorize them. And so they just memorize them throughout his lifetime. After he died, people had verses that they had memorized and they would share them. And this goes on for a while until the third caliph, um, Uthman, who he was a caliph from 644 to 656. And... Muhammad dies in 632. So this is a sometime after he has died. He's credited with organizing the canon or the canon, the canon of the Quran. And really what he went through the community and kind of asked what what verses do you know, what verses do you know and really created one Quran. I think that there had been kind of multiple versions with different verses, a lot of them very similar, but he really were like, this streamlined it. This is the one that we're using. Have we, so, have we talked about what a canon is? Oh, I don't think we probably have. Probably not. So what a canon is. So remember how we talked about scriptures. Scriptures are, you know, some sort of text loosely defined, in my opinion, does not have to be written down. Other scholars will disagree. But I agree with you on that. That's fine. Yeah, right. Exactly. Especially that's- since most of them start off being oral. Exactly. And then- But that's beside the point. So when these scriptures get compiled, like what you were just talking about, someone sits down or a group of people sit down and decide what is going to go 
in that book or that collection of scriptures. And that becomes the canon. So that is like the authoritative version. Yes. So he compiles or at least organizes it. So the current Quran that we have now that is since this third caliph and caliph is just the leaders after Muhammad. So there was a dispute over who the first caliph would be. It was not Ali spoiler alert. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there were a series of caliphs and then we kind of fall into the Islamic empire. Lots of history, like totally condensed in those moments. Um, but the, the Quran that has survived, it has 144 sutras or chapters. The longest is the first and the shortest is the last. Did you say sutras? Yes, sutras. Not suras? I thought they were suras. Oh, they are suras. Wow, thank you. (laughs) I was like, hold on a minute. Wait, what? Yeah, that's definitely a cross in my mind between Hinduism and... You're good, you're good. I I had to stop for a second and be like, wait a minute. Is that right? No, it's suras. No, it wasn't right. It's suras. So it starts the longest, the is at the beginning and then but the one exception is so the first chapter which is the profession of faith so that's the first chapter so it's not necessarily the longest but it's followed by chapter two which is the cow and that is the longest and then with each chapter that succeeds that it gets uh shorter and shorter and shorter so and they are the, not ordered in chronological order either no and there's no narrative structure right. which people who are familiar with the torah and the bible are going to be confused are confused and often struggle because both of those are incredibly narrative mm-hmm. and the, the Quran is not narrative in, in any way. There are narratives within it, but it'll be like, you know, say this chapter is 15 pages long, like three lines of it are narrative. Right. I also found in reading the Quran that, okay, so in the Torah or the Bible, the story of Moses is an entire book. It's called Exodus. Exodus is many pages long. The whole story of Moses, as to, it's not even all told in the same parts. Like, I think it's like three or four parts of the Quran in different chapters mention the story of Moses. But all of Moses is told in like five lines, as opposed to many, many pages. You get like about five or six lines about Moses. And it's the real, the key part of it is it's kind of like, I, I'm not, I don't know the line word by word. So I'm paraphrasing here. But it's basically like, remember Moses who let his people out of Egypt and then he broke the tablets and didn't get into the promised land. That makes me, which is literally like, that is the story. That that is, that is the story, but that makes me incredibly sad. So, and and in case any of our listeners want to know the official endorsed favorite version of that story by this podcast, it is the film Prince of Egypt. Yes. Every year for Passover, right. although neither one of us is Jewish, <laughs> we both in our separate spaces watch the Prince of Egypt together and text each other as we are watching it's, it. It's awesome. We have done this for several years now. Um, usually this starts with me first listening to the soundtrack and texting Ryan about it. And then we uh, watch the movie. Together. Shout out to Netflix for keeping the contract with DreamWorks. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But this is it's endorsed by us because it's the most accurate version according to the Midrash. But we will get to that when we talk about Judaism. I just anyway, like so it. Jay no knows narrative. the reasons why it's good. <laughs> um, so there's no narrative structure. And then the verses, so the chapters are called surahs, and the verses are called ayahs. So that is the Quran. Oh, also it's believed that the um the original Arabic version, that's like the version. So any translated version, it's 
I wouldn't say corrupted, but it's it is believed to have like lost its touch. Right. So you wanna so a lot of people who are Muslim will learn how to read the Quran, even if they don't actually understand it, but they learn how to read the Quran. And so they'll like their parents will or at some point, like they might go to classes to learn Arabic learn how to read in Arabic so they can read it. The, like it's seen as the most important things to read the Quran in its original text of Arabic. And it is in Arabic. They don't typically write vowels in words. So they only write consonants. The Quran is one of the only texts where the vowels are always written so that there is no question about how the words are supposed to be pronounced. So, and should we also talk about that's a Hadith right now? Oh, sure. We can talk about Hadith. Do you okay? You brought yeah, it up. Yeah, I can so talk about, about it. About it. Um, so, <clears throat> the Quran is the most important piece of scripture for Muslims, hands down, no question. Um, but there's also a sort of companion um, called Hadith, which this is just the words and deeds of Muhammad. And so, this is stories that were conveyed about Muhammad for about the first hundred years after his death, if I'm correct. Um, mm-hmm. And so, this is like people who knew him who were running around with him, um, who saw him places, were telling stories about what he did. So you can kind of think about it, um, not quite the same, but in a sort of corollary to the gospel in the Bible. In that it's in, yes. in that the gospel is what Jesus did. Yeah. There, one difference, though, between the two is that there is like a, a system of authenticity, yes. I guess. For the Hadith, so there's three, I guess, you could call them degrees of reliability. So there's three. There are the sound ones. Those are the best. Good or weak. And so sound ones typically had multiple sources. And so it's like, this definitely happened. Whereas weak ones, maybe one or two people, well respected, but not as many sources. So still included, but again, they couldn't trace it to a lot of people. So that's why it's considered weak. There are six collections that have um, canonical status. And then and of those, only two are considered sound. And these are by al-Bukhari, who died in 870, and Muslim Ibn al-Hajjaj. Mm, that's not how you say that. <laughs> I think it's Hajjaj. I, that, I think that's what it is. Anyway, uh, this person died in 875. And these are considered as the sec- or in terms of importance, they're the second most important in, in Islam, second only in importance to the Quran. So there's your hadith. Right on. What else you got? All right. So we mentioned before that um, that Islam is a monotheistic tradition. Um, so, and I we've kind of alluded to this. We haven't really come out and just said it though. Um, Islam sees itself or Muslims see themselves because Islam doesn't see itself doing anything. It's a religion, not a person. Um, Muslims see themselves as worshiping the same God as Jews and Christians. Oh, sorry to interrupt. No, we never really said what Islam means or what Muslim means. Oh, we didn't. Wow. We suck. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at least we didn't finish the podcast. So Islam means, self-surrender to god and a muslim is one who submits or surrenders to god okay continue so there we go um so 
Islam sees itself as, or Muslims see themselves, good Lord, Muslims see themselves as worshiping the same God as Jews and Christians. They just see themselves as doing it the correct, uncorrupted way, which just gets back at Muhammad and what he was doing and all of that. Um, And Islam is really convenient in that if you want to talk about the beliefs of Muslims, they really condense down their beliefs to be very simple in a similar way to what Christians do, because Christians are just like, you know, you believe that Jesus came and died for your sins and all that. Um, But Muslims go a little bit one step further and there's like a very straightforward um, statement of faith, which is one of what is called the five pillars of Islam, which we'll go into those in a second. Um, But the first one is this statement of faith and It, I think, really well encapsulates the beliefs of Muslims. I'm like, if you need to know anything about Muslims, like you need to know what they believe, this is all you need to know. Um, And so what it is, is there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. And Allah is just Arabic for God. Yes. And, and fun fact, um, if you look up the word in Aramaic, which was the word, or which was the word, which was the language that Jesus spoke, the word for God is almost identical oh, to the word in Arabic. Almost identical. It has one consonant at the end or one uh, vowel at the end. Arabic, Hebrew, and uh, oh, wait, what was the language? I totally just forgot. Aramaic. They're all Semitic languages. So that makes sense to me. But yeah, so like for everyone who's like, you know, thinks all the people who watch Fox News um, who probably aren't listening to our podcast. Let's yeah, be honest. Probably not. But for those of you that listen to our podcast and have friends and family who listen to Fox news, feel free to <clears throat> inform them that the word that Jesus used for God is almost identical to the word that Muslims use. Because I've heard a lot of people say, you know, Allah is not God and all this and that. And it's like, no, it's just the Arabic word. But anyway, so that's the first of the five pillars of Islam. And what, I mean, The five pillars are like the most basic, I don't want to say practices because this one really isn't a practice. Yeah, but this is important so that in the sense that if you convert to Islam, you make this statement. Honestly, so there's like, you can do a formal conversion where you probably go to a mosque or you're in front of a mon, which I'll explain those in a second, and you like make this confession of faith. You could also literally just be in a room by yourself. And if you say this with full intention and belief, you are considered a Muslim. So it's very essential in the faith. Like you say this with full intention and belief. When people are saying it, they truly mean it. And that's what makes them a Muslim. This idea that there's no God, but God and Muhammad is his messenger or prophet is sometimes how it's uh, translated. Mm -hmm. So it's also within prayer which you'll get to in a second like you say it over and over and over in prayer but okay. to get to the things i just said so a mosque is the... hold on let's talk about prayer we'll talk about prayer and then oh, we can talk okay. about mosques okay okay and then we'll talk about imams yeah. too okay, yeah there we, exactly see the second of the five pillars is daily prayer um and i'm not going to pronounce any of these things in arabic because my arabic pronunciations are worse than any of my other pronunciations that you've heard on the podcast so far it's a lot there we go Jay's going to help me with these. So um, daily prayer takes place five times every day. It happens at dawn, at noon, sometime in the late afternoon. And is there like a standard time for that? No, it changes because it's based 
on kind of the moon ish. Oh, so it changes, okay, that's right. That's it right. Me by like a couple of minutes. Okay. But okay. yeah, it changes every day. So there's like full calendars that you can download that'll tell you, mm-hmm. you know, this is when these times are for prayer. Or if you're lucky and you live in a Muslim majority Muslim country, country yeah. and you or community, because like Dearborn, Michigan, right. you can hear the call to prayer in right. Dearborn, Michigan. Um, so then there is, so there's late afternoon, sundown, and in the evening. Um, and this prayer can take place anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a mosque. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and these prayers always take place toward Mecca, which what you were talking about earlier mm-hmm. with the whole the Qibla. Yeah. Um, and there's like actual compasses that you can get. And I'm sure there are apps. Um, that you can get that point oh, you yeah. towards toward Mecca. But yeah, so it's always towards Mecca. And there's also this like, and I can't remember the word, maybe you know, but there's like this system of gestures and sort of, um, uh, what's the word? Um, it's gone from me. My brain just totally went blank. Genuflections, genuflections. Oh, um, okay. That go with, which these are, genuflections are like the, postures and positions that you go into to pray um and there's a whole system of those that go with each prayer are you talking about rakas yes thank you i couldn't remember the arabic word i just knew genuflection because my dad's side of the family is catholic um and so there's a system, there's a set of those that go with every single um prayer so that's prayer did you want to oh and do so you want to talk about mosques now let's talk about mosques and imams uh, yeah, so mosques are the also called masjid. Yes. Uh, there's a reason why that is. I do not remember. I was but, just going to say, yeah, is that because those are both Arabic words, right? Yes. Um, I don't remember. I'll be honest. <laughs> I learned it once, but, and, but I don't remember. Anyway, so mosque or masjid. And that is the house of worship for Muslims in the Arab Peninsula in South Asia it's not common for women to go to mosques, so women often pray at home, but it is common for men to go to the mosque, especially on Fridays. So the Sabbath, so to speak, is Friday, and so typically there are Friday prayers, uh, um, usually around noon, or well, at least in America, around noon or one. I don't remember when I was abroad, what like when I was in India, I don't remember, or even in Oman, I think it was around like one or noon. That seemed to be pretty standard. Uh, but Jay's not a world traveler. He's over here. I've been to Oman, India. <laughs> I mean, I really haven't been to that many countries. They just have to be relevant to the things we talk about on this podcast. But fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, they so yeah. So it's a place where you go. There's typically at least okay in the United States. They often and today and today on Jay has been to every single religious architecture in the world I mean, okay I, whatever i can't even yeah it's true whatever so there's nothing i can say about that i'm very inquisitive and so i like to go places but in america there's no shame just make me look well bad. maybe you should go some places in, this true, in america they often serve as both a place of worship and as a community center so either like right attached to it but anyway you go into the more sacred side oftentimes there's a place for you to wash i think wash is called wadu don't hold me to that but yes that is the before you I know pray there's like a ritual way of washing and you wash various parts of your parts of your body so there's typically a place where you can perform that before you actually go into the what would actually be the mosque part of it 
where you pray. And so there are, if they're not rugs, oftentimes the carpet is set up to look like individual rugs, just like rows and rows of rugs. So you sit down and that's where you would pray. There's usually someone who leads the prayer. The community picks what's called an imam. And this is just a learned person in the community. They don't necessarily have to have special training. They don't have to be like a minister or whatever, but they will often lead prayer. And then they, on Friday, during Friday services, they may give a speech, which in Christian terms would be a sermon, but they give a speech. They may read some verses from the Quran and talk about them, talk about how it's relevant to life or something like that. Um, but that that's a section. Typically, there the section is split. So there's an area for women and there's an area for men. If it's just a first floor, women are usually in the back. And that's because of modesty. Because of the different movements that you make, it would seem kind of sexual or that women are in a vulnerable position if they're in front of men. So typically, they're in the back. And it's like women and children and, and then men. But I've been to a lot of mosques that have two stories so there will be men are on the first floor and there might be a section for instance they have children with them in the back and then women and children if they're present go on the second floor and you and you end up looking down so you can see the imam and hear what's going on or some of them even have like you can see it over the ledge but they also have videos or tvs that you can see the imam on video and that's how those work when they have like multiple stories, <clears throat> but that'll be the, and then you can walk out of that place and there'll be like a community center. Sometimes there's schools attached to you, like the one in Wichita where I'm from, there is a school there, there's a whole community center. And then there's actual, you know, religious part sanctuary, I guess it's not called a sanctuary, but that's the term that came to mind. Uh, and then like, for instance, at the, there's this huge mosque in Delhi. It's actually an outdoor mosque. So everything is brick and everyone pray, like the, the Qibla is kind of a slightly enclosed, uh, arched enclosure. You can walk under and see like Quranic verses written on it. And the Imam kind of sits in, in that space, but everybody else is out on the brick praying. And when services aren't happening, when prayer's not happening, people like have picnics there. It's like public square basically uh, so that is that is there anything else you want to know about mosques um the only other thing i want to talk about that is relevant to mosques is that in islam there is this prohibition against depicting muhammad so when you go into like a christian church 99.9 percent .9 of the time you're going to see that 70s picture of jesus that's in like and you know exactly what i'm talking about i know what you're talking about yeah yes there's going to be some depiction of jesus there's going to be a cross there's going to be you know there's artwork is important to christianity for the most part yeah there's a prohibition of depicting muhammad and so there are not when you go into a, a mosque there's not going to be depictions of muhammad there's not going to be pictures of god Nothing. So the artwork from things that he's read, not from actual experience. As someone who's actually been to a mosque, I can say that's true, that. true. There's also a prohibition on living things in general. Yes. So most of the art is actually fancy calligraphy of verses of the Quran or the word Allah, Allah like God's name. That's what I was going to say. Oh, sorry. I stole your thunder. You stole it. You did steal it. You yeah. stole it. We'll go on to the really next one then. Anyway, so the next one. So the, uh, what are we on? The third one? Yeah. Um, and these are in no particular order except for the first one. 
Um, so the third one in the list is almsgiving. And this is charitable giving. So it's built into Islam that you are required to give a portion of your income to the community that then is used to better the community. And so in, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but in the United States and in non-Muslim majority countries, it's just like a thing that you do at the mosque or on your own. It's not like mandated. Yeah, people, I mean, there's different ways of doing it. So you could, but generally, yeah, people kind of decide how they're going to do it. Either it goes to the mosque or, you know, Muslim, like if there's a school, it might go to that. I've also known of people who right. will send money back to the community that they came from if it's not in the United States and, you know, pay for people to go to school or, you know, buy goats so that people can eat. Like there's different ways of doing it, but generally, yeah. You kind of decide how you want to do it. And in Muslim majority countries, in some countries, it is like built into the tax system. Oh, I didn't know that. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. So like in Saudi Arabia, it's built, totally built into the tax system. Um, And so like, it's all like, you don't even have to worry about it. It's taken care of. Did you say how much it is? Uh, It's two and a half percent. Which of as someone who grew up Christian, I'm like, "Mm, can I get 2.5% because it's 10% in Christianity. I was going to say that tithe is a little higher than that. I'm just saying. <laughs> that's why you wanted to convert. Ha ha. No, that's, I didn't pay taxes then, or really tithe. So, I mean, I put money in the plate, but I didn't have an income to tithe with. So that is not Fair why enough. I wanted to convert. Fair enough. Putting those quarters in the collection plate. Yep. <laughs> um, so the next one is fasting. Swam. See, I would have totally mispronounced that one. Um, So this takes place during the month of Ramadan. And so you've probably, most people I think have probably heard of Ramadan, but don't necessarily know what it is. So it is a month in the Muslim calendar. And like you were saying before, the Muslim calendar like starts with his revelation, right? Yes. And so then, and it's a lunar calendar. Yes. So it has 13 months. Um, Mm, Sure. So yeah, it has 13 months. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, that I know to be true. Um, and one of these months is Ramadan. And this marks the time of year when Muhammad received his first revelation. And so what happens during this month is Muslims will fast during the daytime between sunrise and sunset, and they will abstain from food, drink, sex, smoking, you name it, anything fun and satisfying you're not doing during the daylight hours. Um, and then at the end of that, there is a, uh, what's it called? Eid. Yes. Thank you. Can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah, go ahead. So the last 10 days of Ramadan are considered the holiest. And some people believe that, yes, everyone believes you're supposed to fast during Ramadan. Some people are like, even if you don't fast during like all of Ramadan, fast during the last 10 days, either the, the, the holiest and there are different beliefs kind of surrounding this, but some people believe in the same way that a Christian can pray for forgiveness, that kind of all of your sins are wiped away through Ramadan. That's not like everyone believes that, but some people believe that. Mm-hmm. And there are different things that people do during Ramadan. So one of the things that people do is read the entire Quran. So it's broken into 30 sections and you read one section every night. A lot, I think this is called to weed don't hold me to that but 
a lot of times this will happen at the mosque. And so generally men, but women may go to depending on where you are. Like if you're in Pakistan, as a woman, you're probably not going. But if you're in America, then you may go. And there will be community readings of this. So someone will actually read it out loud and you can follow along or you can recite it with the person because some people have sections or like the whole Quran memorized. But you can do this collectively. But the goal is that at some point people are reading and obviously as you it can go well into the night. So uh, some people, after you break fast when sunsets, will then eat, you know, have communion or not communion, have fellowship with their family. And then they will go. And that was so Christian of you have fellowship. Well, well, it's because I now live in the South and like all (laughs) I know in the South, like, you know, we'll be like, oh, we're going to go to the Black Cultural Center to hang out. And they're like, let's come have fellowship at the Black Cultural Center. And so anytime like people are collectively together, even for non-religious reasons, they're like, let's fellowship. And I, the whole, I'm like, that is so Christian, but now it's just like in my lexicon because that's what people say all the time. Like, let's have fellowship. You know, like I have wine nights with my friend and they're like, let's fellowship over wine. And I'm like, I don't, this is ridiculous, but (laughs) (laughs) they're all from the South. I'm the only one who's not from the South. So I just, fair enough. enough. Um, But you, so after you Mm -hmm. break fast with your family and, Oh, I was going to use another. I was going to. You could say have fellowship. I was just busting your balls. Oh, okay. I'll say fellowship because that's <laughs> much better than Kiki. Um, but you, <laughs> you hang out with your family, and then you will go, or some people will then proceed to pray throughout the night and read the Quran. This particular section of the Quran. Okay. Yeah. And so then at the end of Ramadan, um, I don't know what what's that Eid called. Do you know Eid al Fitar? There we go. I think um, I'm really just like guessing on that one. I didn't look. I think up. that sounds right. Um, that's at the. We totally know what we're talking about, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that, the first one is Eid al Fitar. The second one is Eid al Hada. Isn't that coming up too? E- There's a holiday this weekend. All right, there we go. Look at us. So at the end of Ramadan, it's one of the two sort of. It's like a feast, right? It's like yeah. a holiday, essentially. Um, oh, yeah, it's definitely a holiday. It depends on, like, where you are. Like, it's an actual day, but some people celebrate over the course of, like, two or three days. And so that's what you do at the end. It's this big, massive feast, and you eat lots of food and hang out and have fellowship <laughs> with all your family and friends. Um, one thing before we move on from Ramadan. Um, so go back to the calendar for a second. So since it's a lunar calendar, I like calendars, like if you haven't – figured this out over the course of this podcast. You like everything. I, I do. I like way too much stuff. It's really bad. But anyway, ask my wife. It's a struggle. Um, so because it's a lunar calendar, it doesn't fall or the month of Ramadan doesn't fall in the same time of year every year. So it moves. Also, it's worth saying too that um, certain people are, you know, are not required to fast so like pregnant women don't have to fast elderly folks people who are sick don't have to fast um pure woman on your period yes. during your period you don't have to fast yes. um and so there's lots going on there with who and is and isn't fasting and when they are and are not fasting okay so the last pillar is hajj that one i can pronounce um is is pilgrimage to mecca Um, So what this is essentially is at one point in every Muslim's life, as long as they are financially and 
um, like physically able to go do it. They go to Mecca and there are very specific things that they do over this period of time. Um, and so when they get to Mecca and they wear specific types of clothing, they go to the Grand Mosque, which is which surrounds the Kaaba, which is what Jay was talking about. And we'll put some links to pictures. And I've got a really good video that I show in class that is Snapchat from Hajj, which I like hate Snapchat, but this video is actually pretty cool. But yeah, so over this period of five days, there are all of these specific rituals that you're doing. And so certain points you're walking around the Kaaba a certain number of times. Um, there's one part where I'm not going to go into all the specifics of all the little pieces, but um, there's one part where you are throwing stones at these big pillars that are supposed to represent the devil. It's to recreate um, a part of, so back up for a second. All of our Christian and Jewish listeners will be familiar, somewhat familiar with the story of Abraham and uh, Isaac. So for those of you who are not familiar, this is in what book of the Bible is this in, Jay? Is this in Genesis? Know. This has got to be in Genesis. Yeah, I think it's in Genesis. That sounds right. Um, so Abraham goes up on top of a mountain. God tells him that he needs to sacrifice his son. So in the Christian and Jewish version of the story, he takes his son Isaac. And they go up to the top of this mountain. Abraham's ready to kill Isaac. And Isaac is now figuring out what's going on. And God's like, JK, bro, JK. You don't have to do that. I was just testing you. Because Old Testament God likes to do that with people. So in the Muslim version of the story, it is Abraham taking his son Ishmael up to the top of the mountain. And Ishmael is um, not Sarah's son but uh hagar? hagar's son hey look at look at us knowing our old testament stuff um who is i mean they're like some people say concubine some people say slave it's yeah I, I think that he was a servant yeah in their house yeah or ten let's be honest they weren't living in a house <laughs> uh well i mean really and so god said because sarah was Barren. Infertile. Mm -hmm. Barren. Oh, that sounds like really Old Testament, dark. right? <laughs> uh, Sarah was unable to have children, have children. Which is like, was it her fault or was it Abraham's fault? But that's well, wasn't cause. Abraham like super old too? Yes. Because like people lived till they so, were like 600 in the Old Testament. So. so it actually could have been his fault. But anyway, <laughs> she was unable to... No fertility bear. treatments in ancient Israel. Um, she can... Maybe she probably could get pregnant. She couldn't bear a child. There so, we go. And she was very upset about this because at this point, like women's only role is to bear children. Right. And Abraham wanted an heir. And so finally God was like, look, you can take your servant. You can have sex with her. She will bear you a child. That's how we get Ishmael. Right. Lo and behold, not long after, suddenly Sarah can bear a child. And that's how we get Isaac. Right. But continue. So- Anyway, in the Muslim version of the story, they come back down off the mountain. And when they're coming back down off the mountain, the devil tempts them. Or is it when they're going up the mountain? Did I just screw that up? I do not know. Okay. You're going to have to Google this for yourselves, folks. Either when they're going up the mountain or they're coming down off the mountain. The devil comes and tempts then like is telling. It's got. It's when they're up the mountain. It's going up the mountain. It's going up the mountain. Um, the devil comes to Abraham and is like, 
bro, you don't have to do this. He's talking some sense. God's over here like, you got to kill your son. And um, in the Muslim version of the story, Abraham throws stones at the devil. Um, and so that's what you're recreating. And so that's essentially what the Hajj is, is a lot of recreating recreations of different parts of the story of Islam um, and the history of Islam. Um, and so like you have the Kaaba and how important it is for, you know, Mecca and the and Muhammad's or, you know, the early days of, of Islam with Muhammad um, and Abraham built the Kaaba with Ishmael and all of that. And there's a stone that is like a meteorite that was sent down from God and put in the Kaaba. There's lots of little minute details. Um, but that's essentially what Hajj is, is you, you know, you're supposed to go, you do all these things and it's very like taxing. It's a lot of like, it's not just like a walk in the park. It's not like a vacation. I mean, it's a literal walk in the desert. It is a literal walk in the desert. That is true. It is a little literal walk in the desert. Um, and so then when you come back and you've gone on Hajj, you you earn the title of a Haji. So those are the five pillars. There were a couple of things that I wanted to talk about sort of as tangential things that people misunderstand about Islam. Um, so this is Ryan's soapbox yes. where he's like, as a white person, <laughs> I want to tell white people the real story so that you stop making me look Yeah, bad. I really do because it's a struggle, guys. Um, so... I'm going to get up on my soapbox here for a second. I'm going to try not be too soapboxy. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is... That's a lot. Uh, That's a total it really is. It really is. Um, <laughs> so first thing I want to talk about is jihad. So what that actually means is like in... If we translate it, it means to strive or to struggle. And so what this means in the broader context of Islam is... It's talking about the inner struggle of a good Muslim to strive to be a better person in service to the Muslim community. So it's all about service, which kind of comes back to some of these things that we talked about with the five pillars, you know, particularly with um, this almsgiving um, and stuff like that. So it has nothing to do or it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with warfare or with terrorism. Um, it can mean warfare conducted in self-defense against those who wish to destroy Islam. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say it's something that it's not. Um, however, but I mean, I think we've talked about this uh, with yes, six, exactly. where exactly you know, fighting for justice. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same yeah. idea of that what you are doing, you believe is the word right. of God. And so if someone is a threat to you or a threat to justice, then you're allowed to commit violence to stop that threat to justice or you as a person. Um, And so some fundamentalists and extremists have taken this to mean holy wars of aggression. Um, So like actually going out like ISIS, for instance, going out and attacking people, you know, not being in self-defense. And now I, I would argue they probably think they are acting in self-defense, but that's a whole nother story for a whole different day. Yeah. And I think that there's also like, to a certain degree, I don't think what they're saying is completely off. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, they're reacting to a history of American imperialism in the Middle East. So, I mean, that is sort of in self-defense. But with that said, there's no justification for that. This, uh, there's no justification for aggressive action in the Quran. Which is usually what they right. say. Um, so. 
but it, unfortunately, it has been used by politicians and religious leaders in this way. Now, I would like to make one sort of comparison um, really quickly because the Roman Catholic Church has a similar sort of system. It's called a just war where the Pope will actually say it's OK if you're Catholic to go fight in this war. When is that happening? Um, I am not sure. I will go to the Google machine to find out. It is. I was being sarcastic. The Crusades. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I thought you meant like actually give me some like legitimate answer. No, no, no. I think, but like, I think the Crusades yes. are a perfect example of that. Is a, that is a war. perfect crystal clear example. Um, like, so for instance, here, just Google sent me to Wikipedia. So here we are. Um, right after the United States declared war on Germany for World War One, the uh, cardinal James Gibbons of Baltimore, which he's kind of the the cardinal of Baltimore, is kind of the de facto head of the U.S. Catholic Church. Um, issued a letter saying that Catholics were to support the war, and so it doesn't necessarily have to come from the Pope. It does come from the Pope most of the time, but so there is a system like Christians are not getting off, you know, scot free in this department, um, at least Catholics in that way. So there's that. So jihad is more complicated than just terrorism. Um, I also want to talk about this line, which I talked about, or we kind of alluded to earlier, this death to the infidels or death to the idolaters or death to the polytheists line in the Quran. So if this, if this line is read out of context, you know, for instance, in June of 2019 or June, it's not June, it's August. What the hell? Wow. August? I went wow. back in time two months. Where are you living? <laughs> um, you know, if we read that in today's context, that doesn't sound very good. That sounds pretty bad. Um, but much like many other religious texts, it has a cultural and a historical context that means particular things. And so scholars, and I think it's fair to say a majority of Muslims understand that to be talking about other religious practitioners in Mecca that ran Muhammad and his followers out of town after things got messy in Mecca. And then who Muhammad then right. went back exactly. and conquered. Um, so that line has a cultural and historical context. And also I would like to make another comparison. Um, I don't think it's a good practice for folks to take one line from a large religious text to characterize an entire body of religious believers. Um, I think that most Christians would not appreciate that if they were a, you know, if they were in the position that Muslims are in the United States, I don't think they would like for non-Christians to dig through the Bible because I'm sure I could pull out a text or a, a verse from the old Testament for certain, um, that sounds just as bad as that when taken completely out of context. I mean, it doesn't really have to be taken out of context, but in many places throughout the Bible, it says that slavery is okay. That is true. That is a very good point. Um, and there's like varying degrees of like what slavery is in there too. It's weird. So that's what I have. So I'll, I'll step off my soapbox. Thanks for indulging me, all of our listeners. <clears throat> and Jay. I don't know if I really have a choice. 
Um, in our last episode, we talked about wanting to get another country, and we did. So currently, you are you looking at it? I'm not looking at it. Yes. Uh, what we are the gained, countries? So that we are being countries to? now. We have 17 st- states in the United States. We have listeners in the UK. Um, we have listeners in India. We have a listener in Myanmar or Burma. And we have a listener in Austria. So if you have friends who live in other countries, please tell them. And hopefully they will listen and we can increase our international listeners. And so I can go tweet out cool. Yeah, that too. International tweets. (laughs) I also want to say that Kansas continues to be our largest listeners uh, with Wichita continuing. I mean, my peeps in Wichita, I cannot thank you enough. Because dominating, I promote, not even continuing, dominating. I don't even promote it like half as much as Ryan does, and yet you all continue screaming to us support from us. <laughs> so I want to say thank you to the people in Wichita. I also want to say um, thank you to my friends in Tennessee. I've only been in Tennessee, or people in Tennessee, I guess. I've only been in Tennessee like eight months now, and Tennessee is it goes back and forth between the second most populous state and our third most populous state currently in third place so if you have some friends in tennessee tell them to listen and you can be back in number two number two right now is california shout out to all the people in northern california because that's mostly where most of our listens listens are coming from so thank you to that our most listens come from vacaville and i'm still trying to figure out who it is in vacaville so if i know you let me know and i will shout you out but Shout out to my friends and the people that I know, at least the cities that I recognize, where there are people that I know who are listening in in NorCal, because, again, I'm really bad at promoting this, and yet you people continue to listen. (laughs) So uh, thank you. I mean, thank you to everyone else, but those are people who are, like, really giving us numbers. And do we have any other announcements? I mean, uh, before we go into our closing? Uh, I don't have anything. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what we're doing, give us a rating, subscribe, follow on any of the places that you listen to podcasts. We're probably there. If not, let us know. We'll try to get there. Not really sure how we'll do that, but we'll figure it out. Google exists. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at religiouslitpod. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash religiously literate. And you can email us at religiouslitpodcast at gmail.com. So if you have something that you're really interested in hearing about that's not one of the top five religions, if you have questions or comments, if you want to tell us that we're awful, if you want to tell us that we're great. I mean, we don't really get mail, so we will read it on Let's the air. Send us mail. Come on. Honestly, we want to we wanna, you know, hear from the people. You know, That's right. So there's that. Again, you can listen to us at all the places that you find podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.